Sebisdoi. Wish. Makau. Riley? Riley, are you there? I'm here, Dan. Oh god, Riley, it's dark. I'm so cold. Dan, just let go. It's okay. You can go. I no no, I'm good to keep trying and fighting. I d- No, Dan. No, Dan. You can you go. You can go. Riley, why are you shoving me? Riley, stop shoving me towards the light. Riley, I don't want to go. go. The Riley. door is open. Go. <laughs> That would be a great death scene. <laughs> you know what? That would be an actually really funny scene. I'm so cold. No, just go. No, I don't. I'm no. I don't want to go. No, no, really. <laughs> no, 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 I've got. I've got lots of fight left in me. I'm. In fact, I, I feel like I'm starting to make a comeback here. I. No, no, I, no. You're not. You're not. No. You, you just go. I'm definitely. Like, I think my my fever's gone. I'm, I'm no, breathing. No, it's not. No, you're. <laughs> Why are you putting a pillow over my face? <laughs> Oh, God damn. Welcome yeah. to the weird. Welcome to the weird. This is episode 16. Sweet 16. How are you? I am good. How are you? What's new? What's happening? What is shaking in your world? Nothing, but my favorite thing in the world is that glass case that hovers over your head. Yes. I love that glass case. You don't know what's in it, do you? No, I don't, but it suits the podcast so much because it looks like a weird curiosity artifact thing. What is it? Is it a soccer ball or something? Well, you're in the right realm in terms of it's a sports item. Well, I knew it would be because that's what you, that's kind of who you are. I like, well, it's part of who I am. I didn't think it would be a, you know, a, I didn't think it would be a slim volume of verse. I've got, I've got a whole bunch of plays that sit directly below it. The Wedding Singer's not a play, Dan. Uh, it was originally... Okay. What is in the what is in the glass case? What so is that it? is a signed uh, Miami Dolphin uh, Dan Marino, who was a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins for uh, just under twenty years, I think, and, and arguably one of the best quarterbacks to play. It's his helmet and signed. I'm so bored. I'm so bored right now. You asked. I know. I wish I hadn't. Would you like to know some of the plays that are on my on my? No, nobody wants to me? know the. Nobody wants to know that, Dad. We what we want to know is what story you're going to tell us this week. No one wants. No one wants to know about your plays. Did you write them? You know, uh, we have okay. So, listener, we have a mutual friend uh, who we've mentioned before on this podcast, uh, the young spry Jeff Lawson. If you'd like to know what uh, Jeffrey looks like, check him out on IMDb. He's got a plethora of uh, film and, and television titles. Jeff and I went through theater school together. In our first year, we were really put off by, or, or, or sort of felt inferior to all the plays and things people had done in high school. And all Jeff and I had done was improv. That's our background. We came up with these 13 robot plays that we would talk about in class and and speak of in a very convincing way that we had written and performed uh, these 13 robot plays in high school. And we would reference like, I remember in robot play number eight, I believe it was where, and it was great. And to the point where, you know, after graduating, speaking to people who asked about, do you remember you did those weird 13 robot plays? We never let on that it was just a complete farce. So I think that's the closest I've ever come to writing a play, even though we didn't ever actually ever write those. We just sort of talked about them. I like that, actually. 
We also wrote a, a musical about our philosophy professor, Madame Gertin, and she used to say yes in threes, and she had this very high pitch voice, and she'd go, yes, yes, yes. You have a story for us? Do you have a story? I want to hear a story. I do have a story, and this is, uh, I thought that, you know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the Wicklow County Jail. That chilling, awful place. Jesus. So the the interesting thing is that that actually, that episode did lead me to this one. In that episode, I talked about how some of the people that were held at the jail were eventually shipped off to Australia. Which I loved. And we talked about spiders. Yes. There's so many dangerous things uh, on that island. Is it an island? Can you call Australia? It's a continent. It's a continent. continent. All the big shark attacks happen there. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let's look for a story from Australia. And, And I'll be honest, didn't know a lot about folklore or any of the weird and creepy things that have happened there. And found a whole slew of them. But one story in particular sort of touched a nerve with me and i uh, would like to tell that story tonight do you know how many weird fucking murder stories come out of australia there are so many fucking creepy murder stories in australia it's unbelievable there's some shit going down out there in the interior that mm, mm. well it's again we've talked about this in in other episodes isolation mm, can do that rural gothic they're still a nation that, for much like Canada, where there's your the, the frontier is still a reality. Yes, you know, and there's a very marked, very marked difference between the people who live on the coasts, which is where I think eighty to ninety percent of the population yeah. live on the coast, to the people who live in in the interior. It's a very different culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny too because last week we mentioned about some of the angry people uh, that will sometimes comment on our posts and I think a large majority of them come from Australia. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. it's funny. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I it it almost makes it endearing. Because as a Canadian, I I don't know about you, I always felt an affinity for Australia. Like they're sort of uh, are equals in some ways. You know, we're a commonwealth. Political political temperaments. Yeah. And then I, yeah. I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that we're probably closer to New Zealand than we are Australia, whereas Australia is maybe more like the United States in some ways. I wish we were closer to New Zealand. I'm not sure I agree. I think, I think New Zealand would be a, a great example to live up to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, sure. I, yeah. just, I just think that, you know, we live in the shadow of the United States. New Zealand lives in the shadow of Australia, or at least maybe perhaps that's how it's viewed. Uh, I also think that news, the Kiwis have the same, or Canadians have the same sort of short poppy syndrome, where we don't celebrate our successes, our, our successful people as maybe as much as we should. Oh God, tell me about it. Mm-hmm. I know it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Any Canadian singer or actor uh, we produce, we tend to poo-poo, you yes. know, and, and we don't like them and we think they're sellouts or whatever. And I'm not that way, but I know a lot of people are. All right. So the, the story that I want to bring to you, the listener today, is a creepy one. And this is a dark, and I'm going to just start off by saying this is a sad story. 
This is a very sad and a very real story. We don't have to go very far back in our little time machine here. Uh, We're going to the 1970s. Okay. That was my decade, man. Well, mine too. And and it's kind of... It's not uh, your decade. You were a baby. I was a teenager. Well, I just... Sorry, it's your decade that way. But this... this, I mean, that's the decade I was born in. Mm -hmm. And the main people in this story are roughly my age. This is the story of the horned man of circular key. And I just want to also say that prior to my research, I thought, and I've always thought this, that key, which is spelled Q-U-A-Y, was pronounced quay. And it was in speaking with you before recording this that you set me straight that that's pronounced key. Yes. I think I knew that from just vacationing in Florida. The Florida Keys. But the Florida Keys aren't spelt that no, way. No, no, no. But other areas where there's keys, I just knew that. Interesting. Okay. So what happened? Do, are, are you familiar with this at all, Riley? Not, never. First time I've ever heard of it. Okay. So this is what happened. On June 9th, 1979, the Luna Park ghost train burned down in a fire that killed seven people. So this ride is in a, uh, an amusement park in Australia, and it was a very, very popular uh, area in the Circular Quay. And it's a ghost train. It was a ghost train. I already like it. The fire broke out inside the ride at approximately 10.15 p.m. So it was later in the night and the day was winding down. So there wouldn't be little kids in it. It'd be teenagers, probably. Unfortunately, you're incorrect. Oh, the fire was due to a combination of low water pressure, understaffing within the park and inadequate coverage of the ghost train by the park's fire hose system and a complete lack of a working sprinkler system in the ride. And as a result of that, the fire was able to completely, completely consume the ride. The whole thing went up. So this was a permanent ride. It wasn't like those shitty carnivals that come to town and it's on the back of a truck. That's right. This is like a a much smaller version of Disney World. Can you describe the ride? What was it? Well, if you think of some of those exhibition rides, you you go onto like a little roller coaster train Mm -hmm. and you go through a door and then you're- Into the darkness and all that. Into the darkness. Yeah. It's one of those types of, of rides. So- Sorry, those rides I used to buy tickets for, and those carnival rides are fucking expensive. I remember I would buy tickets to them, and I always be so angry at those rides because all you did was go in the dark, and there'd be like some shitty old dirty mask. It was horrible. They were they were such a ripoff. Mm-hmm. I went. I remember going through uh, obviously the the cream of the crop in Disney World, going through. The haunted mansion. Uh, the snow. Well, the haunted. Yeah, the haunted mansion. That's in a whole other bag. No, I was thinking more like the Snow White ride, because that was like a higher end version of these rides. It was very simple but beautiful and scary with the witch and all that. So anyway, yes. John Godson and his two children, Damien who was six, and Craig who was four. Oh no, Dan. Uh, along with Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson, and Seamus uh, Rahilly, all lost their lives. And those, the, the, the other kids that I mentioned are te- were teenagers. 
they, they were the people that were in the ride when this happened. Sad story and not really weird territory just from that first part. But it must here's have the gone up part. really fast. Super fast. Oh, like God. really, really fast. Okay. Jenny Godson, who was the, uh, the mother of these children, uh, who now goes by the name of uh, Pod Devon, uh, had been really, really sick for the year prior to this event. And she was recovering uh, from a brain hemorrhage that had kept her hospitalized and separated from her family in Sydney for three months. Jenny described the lead up uh, to the horrible event, uh, and this is a quote, we made the most of that last day. John and I wanted to give the kids the time of their lives. We spent the day at the Taronga Zoo, then headed for Luna Park in the evening. And as they emerged from Coney Island, Jennifer and John realized that they had four tickets remaining, enough for one last ride. And again, this is a, a direct quote of hers. We asked Damien and Craig what ride they'd like to go on again, she remembers. They chose the ghost train. Little did I know. For some reason, suddenly I felt like an ice cream. I asked the others if they wanted one, but they said no. I asked them to wait for me, but when I turned around, they were gone. I don't know why they didn't wait for me, as we'd been on every ride together that night. It still haunts me to this day. Something spiritual took over divine intervention for some reason i was not meant to die that night and that's a quote from an article written by glenn williams uh, from 2009 and i remember reading as well in my research that jenny mentioned in a, in a different interview she doesn't even really like ice cream like that's not something she would normally go for but just in that moment she had this urge to have ice cream you know this story is hurting my heart yeah, it made me sad. This is, oh. this is a sad one. Sometime after the tragedy, Jenny Godson came across some of the photographs taken during that horrible day and stopped to stare at one in particular that stood out. It was a picture of her son, Damien, and it's the last one ever taken. And it shows a little boy posing very shyly next to this intimidating spooky scary demonic looking figure uh, it's it's a man but he has this giant uh, uh mask on his his head and it looks like a, a cowish sorry, bull sort of face and, and giant horns coming out of it so like the minotaur right like the minotaur yeah actually that's a, a great sort of comparison and and again this will be posted on our site it's very, very eerie and very unsettling, the photograph. So this photo was apparently taken just hours before the family boarded the train. And it was Damien, uh, the little boy, that was approached by this horned man, who became known as the horned man at Circular Quay, as he waited for a ferry. The figure apparently put his hand on his shoulder, and the photo was snapped. It was one of the, it was, it was, it ended, and that ended up being the last photo of, of Damien's life. The person wearing the mask was believed to be one of the many buskers that called the promenade home every day of the week. So this was not out of the ordinary for someone to be dressed up in a costume to be walking around and, and taking photos. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it, the, the, he wouldn't have necessarily stood out for being dressed up. But the weird part is no one had ever seen this character before. 
and not many people, there was no one that that stepped forward to say, yeah, I saw that guy or it's like he kind of just showed up and disappeared. Oh, oh it's kind of Mothman-y. It's kind of like these things mm-hmm. show up and they sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. okay, go ahead. So obviously after the, when once it became, um, this picture came to fruition. There was actually a, an investigation into who who was this. Not that he was in any trouble, but people wanted to know who were you. What did you like? You know, no one was ever able to figure out who this person was. To this day, no one knows who was in that um, in that costume. If it was a person in a costume, and and it is quite evil looking and satanic. The hide part of this costume is a part of an actual animal hide. You know, this isn't a, a cloth costume. It looks like almost like the carcass of a dead animal. What's the kid's name again? I have to look at this. What's his name again? D- type in the the uh, horned man at Circular Quay. Oh, Jesus. And he's topless. Yeah, I know. Exactly. He's wearing like a leopard skin loincloth. He's in very good shape. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize the headdress would be that primitive. Right. The kid's not, then the kid's not into it. No, you could tell by, by Damien's body language that he's uncomfortable with this person. Oh, and there's a picture of of, uh, some of the aftermath of the fire. Jesus Christ. Okay. So the hollow, the hollow black eyes that you're, that you're looking at, they were cut into the mask and, and made it. In my opinion, made it look even more sinister and and devil like, right? It's not like cute eyes that you would find on most <laughs> mascots. It like this thing is just something out of a, a, a horror show. Like it's not pleasant or nice. And why would this person dress this way? And you can tell that, like in the photo, that's the middle of the day too. So it's not like meant to scare the teenagers. So it's, it's just it's. Very out of place. Yeah. This person and I this costume. I find the fact that it's he's topless too, it's just a little bit off. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just, that's a bit off for me. So after the fact, this photo be- became known, comparisons were made between that figure and the god or demon, depending on which version of the story you read, of Moloch. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Moloch? I am indeed. Right. So Moloch, for those of you who don't know, is an old ancient deity. And his he comes from the canon of Canaanite gods. And he's associated with child sacrifice through fire or war. Oh, wow. And it, Canaanite religions refers to the group of ancient Semitic religions uh, that were practiced thousands of years ago they kind of ended up having different uh, sort of spin-offs through the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. And, and so some of those gods that they worshipped ended up making their way into these different uh, places and cultures. Even Rome ended up borrowing some of them. And some of these practices, like with the Carthaginians, they sacrificed children. In a, in, in a way that was done, you know, at a prior time. So the rabbinical tradition depicted Moloch as a bronze statue mm-hmm. heated with fire into which the victims were thrown. I read one account where they used to have like little doors and each door was, they would place different things. And the last door was where they'd put children. 
Wow. I read other accounts where there would be a fire and that they would place their children into the hands, the outreached hands of the statue. And they would sort of cover the child and the child would, would, would be murdered that way. So super dark. That's really fucking dark. And, and terrible. He's mentioned several times in the Bible, and he ends up being sort of associated with one of the fallen angels. He's actually, in the Christian faith, he is considered a demon and a follower of Satan. He is listed as one of the, the sort of chief lieutenants of Satan's in Milton's Paradise Lost. Also, this was an interesting piece that I picked up in Fritz Lang's silent film Metropolis, the industrial machinery, the factory is envisioned as a sacrificial temple to Moloch. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. So there's been sightings of this type of creature for the last long while. Uh, there was a many sightings of a Moloch-like creature in Cornwall, England from the 1970s to the 1990s. This is going back to a little bit what you were saying before about Mothman. People described it looking a little bit like a horned owl. Okay. Which you could easily then say perhaps was a, uh, maybe a horned moth. Right. Yeah. And he had, uh, Moloch had wings. Like he could fly and do lots of weird and creepy things. So this thing would go and terrorize people. Jenny Godson, so again, the mom, believes something evil was at work. But the mystery of, of exactly who the horned masked man remains. She uh, gave an interview to the Daily Telegraph, and she speaks very freely about this. And to be honest, Riley, I think if she wasn't speaking about it, I don't think I would have felt comfortable even bringing this story up. But she, she speaks about it. Right. So she, she said, I did question it, and I've learned to have a truly open mind. I'm not a religious person, but I just feel it was all meant to be. To this day, I still believe that there is someone out there that knows the exact truth, and I don't believe justice has been done in terms of what truly happened there that night. So there's kind of two wings to this story. There is the supernatural, possible supernatural, mm -hmm. with the, you know, the appearance of this demonic type creature yeah. right before, you know, the, the fire. But there's also what, like, what about the fire? Like, how did it start? Yeah, were they were they charged? Did it shut the park down? So there was a, a, an investigation, obviously, that followed. Although electrical faults and arson by uh, unknown figures have been claimed, the exact cause of the fire could not be determined by uh, a coroner. So the coroner also ruled that while the actions of Luna Park's management staff before and during the fire... In particular, they're choosing not to follow advice on the installation of a sprinkler system oh. in the ride, breached their duty of care, charges. So even though they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, charges of criminal negligence should not be laid. That's what the coroner ruled. Kind of weird. It is really weird. It was demonstrated that the ride's permanent wiring and attractions were also not the source of ignition. So they did all that investigating and nothing came of it. They don't know why it started. They don't know how it started. And no one apparently was to blame. So no one was fined. No one was imprisoned. The park no. wasn't shut down. It was business as usual. Yeah, money talks, man. The, the park was shut down. Okay. For good? No, it reopened in 1982. Okay. In 1987, a government inquiry into corruption 
by the National Crime Authority reopened the investigation of the fire. Makes sense, right? Because that just doesn't compute with what happened as a result of that coroner's report. At all. However, no new evidence was presented, but it was found that the police investigation into the incident had been inadequate and that the coroner's report ineffective. So that's all they found when they reopened in 1987. Mm -hmm. No new leads. Except in May of 2007, a woman by the name of Anne Buckingham, who was the niece of a Sydney underworld figure, you're going to like this name, Abe Saffron. <laughs> yeah. It sounds so made up. I know. It sounds like something out of Dick Tracy. Yeah, Abe Saffron. Was he yellow? You sound like you're a jackass if you're named Abe Saffron, and you should be a mobster. Uh, Anne Buckingham, this niece, claimed in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald that her uncle was responsible for the fire. Buckingham claimed the attack was part of a plan for Saffron to gain control of Luna Park's lease, although she stated her belief that the seven deaths were not intended, which would make sense. Former park artist Martin Sharp claimed that Saffron had approached Luna Park's owner, Ted Hopkins, several years before the fire, offering to buy the park. And in 1985, it was claimed by the New South Wales MP Michael John Haddon that Saffron had beneficial ownership of the park, resulting in an inquiry which concluded that although people related to Saffron were involved in supplying pinball and arcade games and things like that, Abe Saffron himself was not linked to the ownership of the park. But, I, you know, and I read that and I thought, sure he wasn't, because any smart mob boss doesn't ever have direct links to the things that you know could get them in trouble exactly they do that at arm's length yeah they always get them for tax evasion or something right yeah it's the dumb stuff that yeah. they, they the mistake they finally make a mistake yeah saffron and this is i think his nail in the coffin saffron had been associated with seven other arson attacks in the tears following the ghost train fire although he had repeated he's repeatedly denied involvement in the in the ghost train fire itself and Buckingham later retracted her comments and oh. said, basically, uh, yeah, it's not true what I said. Oh. So with that story, again, two parts. I think I don't think it's a huge leap to suggest that Saffron was probably behind the arson. I would imagine that he did not intend for those kids to die. And perhaps it being late at night, maybe they thought that it wasn't there was going to be no one on it or or very few people on it, or that it wouldn't go up as fast as it did. Yeah, yeah, that's you probably, know? yeah. The, the fact that you told me that people were in it and couldn't get out, I was like, wow, that went up fast. But the other part of it to me, and this is why I think I was drawn to it, I've always been drawn to that concept of premonitions or ghostly figures that come to you right before mm -hmm. something bad happens or you're going to die. And it's this ended up working well, well because there was a few other stories that I've come across over the last few months that I didn't feel could make a full episode. So I thought that this would be an interesting opportunity to bring some of these stories up that maybe wouldn't get the light of day otherwise. So it's a it's a it's an autumn cornucopia of tales. Yeah, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I think the focus is is the horn man. Can I tell you something? I wanted to tell you a story because I, it's a really quick one, but it's the saddest. It's going to be dark episode, man. It's the saddest thing I have ever seen as I think in my entire life. 
the saddest like thing that I have actually seen, not read about, but okay. actually was privy to. Okay. And it reminded me of that when you told me about these poor kids and their father and the mother who went for ice cream and now she's the only surviving member of this vibrant family that, you know, minutes ago had been very happy and whatever. So we would go to church in where I grew up and um, in the church there was a couple um, a man and a woman, um, I guess, probably early 30s. They had two small kids. Kids were probably um, younger than your kids. I'd probably say that the boy was maybe 10. And my dad knew them because my dad served on the church council. You know, you have a parish council to sort of oversee everything. He was on the parish council and so was the guy. So he knew the family through that. Anyway, Christmas Eve, the family had been on the go all day and they were just exhausted. So the father... Mother decided she would stay home and just take care of stuff at home. And the father decided that he would take the two kids to his parents' house where they could open presents because they, there was just too much going on. The mother said, I'll stay back and get stuff ready and blah, 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 because there was just so much to do. Um, it was, I guess, quite late at night when they headed off for the in-laws um, and he fell asleep at the wheel. The car went off the road and his two children were killed. Oh, yeah. But he survived. I often thought I should write about this because you didn't see him or her again for about, probably about eight months. And finally, they showed up again at church, this couple without their children. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then they just looked so different. They looked mm -hmm. like their very souls had left their bodies. They were just mm -hmm. spiritually desiccated. And then that year at Christmas, he killed himself. Yeah. He hung himself in their garage and all that was left was her. And I only ever saw her one more time at church. And she was a woman who just, there was nothing left. Her entire family was gone. And this just and like the father shouldn't, I, he felt so bad, but it was just an accident. He fell asleep. It happens. I remember being so profoundly affected by the fact that one year and all of these events can change people so dramatically that their whole world is just completely destroyed. And that story has stayed with me my whole life. My dad too. My dad remembers the story. Everyone who experienced this in that parish would remember the story because I remember it, it was almost like when the, the family finally showed up, the, the parents finally returned back to church the whole place went silent. Yeah. You know, everybody was like, oh my God, you know, because they're all thinking about what these people have gone through. Mm -hmm. And you as a parent, I'm sure can relate. I mean, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable what these people went through. Sorry to mm -hmm. cast a dark shadow, but it's an important story, I think. Well, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because Jenny actually has, you know, spoken to where she's at now. And I think for a lot of people that would crush them as you sort of brought up, you know, and mentioned, and you have survivor's guilt and, and um, Jenny is alive and well today. She remarried. She has a beautiful daughter. Sort of, she feels like it's her uh, second chance at life and um, has continued to live her life to the fullest. And sounds like a really grounded and extremely powerful person. So that is the silver lining to this story is that, you know, the, a story of resiliency in the end, you know, with, with Jenny being able to carry on and, and keeping her children alive through her memories and her, her willingness to talk about them. I mentioned that I'd like to sort of bring up some other 
stories where similar weird things like this have happened. And one of the most famous ones, have you ever heard of Kathy Hobbs? No. So this is a, a sort of famous premonition story. She believed that she was or she was going to die when she was 16 years old. So she was having these dreams as a young child where she believed that she was going to die at the age of 16. Wow. Mm-hmm. And in 1987, her family moved to Las Vegas and leading up to her 16th birthday in that year, Kathy spent most of her time in the house. She was terrified, refused to leave, uh, was very secluded. The night before her 16th birthday was petrified and had trouble obviously falling asleep if you believe you're about to die. Mm -hmm. And when she woke up uh, the next day, she was surprised and relieved to realize I'm alive and apparently started to live the life of a normal 16 year old, you know, went out, started to make friends, good, started wearing makeup and lived her life. I love wearing makeup. She, she went right to the makeup drawer. I, when I'm feeling like living life, I put makeup on too. The sad part is that she ended up disappearing in that same year on July 23rd, 1987. And it was on that night that she, she was reading a book in her room and at about 11 o'clock at night, she had finished her book and she told her mom that she was going to go to the corner store uh, to buy another book uh, for her to read. At around 3 a.m., Vivian, her mom, awoke from a sound sleep and she felt that she had been hit on the head. Afterwards, she had a peaceful feeling and felt that it, and that's in quotation marks, was over. At the time, she did not understand the meaning of that experience, what that, what that head hit feeling meant or that peaceful feeling she had. But the next morning when she woke up, she discovered that her daughter's bed was empty. Oh, God. And she contacted the police and an extensive search began. So tragically, it appeared that Kathy's premonitions were almost accurate. Although she lived to the age of 16, she had been killed just three months after that. Was she killed? I thought you said she disappeared. Well, she did. And then they eventually found her body. Oh. And she had been um, murdered by a serial killer whose name is Michael Lockhart, Michael Lee Lockhart. But the, the eerie part is after her death, her family found letters that she had written to them. And the letters were dated one month before her 16th birthday. And she talked about how much she loved her family and didn't want them to be upset about her death. So she was really firm that I'm going to die at 16. And it's not like she took her own life or did reckless things. It, she got really, really unlucky and crossed the path of a serial killer. Oh, my God, that is so fucked up. Another one that I, I actually did know about this one prior to, you know, doing this podcast was Sharon Tate's dream. Are you aware of this? No. Oh, God. The Manson murders. Ah! Two years prior to her death in 1967, she had a really vivid dream that basically was the way she described it was the murder scene of her eventual death. Oh my God. Uh, she said she saw someone being tied to the staircase and she couldn't tell if it was her or her then boyfriend, Jay Sebring, the Hollywood hairstylist and that their, their, their throat had been cut open. So that was kind of odd, right? That's really odd. So 
to go back though to sort of that harbinger of doom, sort of like the the the, the horned man. There is Mothman, and I don't want to go into too much detail on this because I think Mothman is an episode in of itself. Oh, Amen, yeah. But just for the, those of you who don't know, the Mothman appeared in West Virginia in the 1960s. He appeared to, I believe, grave diggers, like was the initial sighting, uh-huh. and then sort of presented himself to a number of different people in this small town. His presence coincided with the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which injured or killed over 40 people. Right. Sort of after the incident, many people sort of believed that that he was sort of prophetic and that he was, or it was, signaling disaster. So that if you see the Mothman, you know that something bad is going to happen to you. Because other people have seen him, right? Yeah, he's been seen since. Who knows what what that one's all about. It does also physically maybe resemble Moloch as well. Well, there's also tons of these in folklore too, right? If you hear a bird tapping on your window, I remember that one. There's a white deer, white deer, you see a white deer in the forest. Yeah. There's all kinds of signals that, um, that you're going to be experiencing some kind of tragedy. So interesting. You say the bird because, and this, again, this will be, for sure, an episode I had never heard of this before, and this is just creepy. Is the Black Bird of Chernobyl? Oh, oh, oh! That was such a good series. Did you see it? I did. Oh my god! Oh my god! It was good. The HBO series. Yeah, it was great. So, sightings of this black bird began just months before the Chernobyl nuclear disaster it took place in 1986. And the creature shares many of the same characteristics as Mothman. It's a humanoid. It's winged, covered in dark hair, and has glowing red eyes. And sightings of this blackbird began in the days leading up to that incident, which, you know, killed a lot of people. So kind of creepy and weird. There's another one, too, going sort of speaking of legends. Uh, it's the Kuhu Wraith. And it's a mythological creature that can be found in Welsh folklore. And this is a a shrouded creature uh, and has long been said to stalk the land and people of Wales. It's an omen of death. Legend has it if you hear its terrifying moans and shrieks, dreadful fate awaits you. If Kuhuraith, and I think I'm pronouncing, it's Welsh, eh? Like, what a tough language. Oh my God, it's a tough language. If Kuhuraith is heard near the sea, a fatal shipwreck will soon take place. Worse still, for those unfortunate enough to come face to face with it, it's described as a wild-looking creature with long, disheveled hair, black, pointed teeth, long, withered arms, and a wail so mournful that certain death follows in its wake. And, good listener, I need to point out that's exactly what Riley looks like. Exactly. Right down to the pointed teeth. Yeah. I'm a steak lover. How much did you have to pay? How much did you... Yeah, you had to pay a, a lot, I imagine, at the dentist to get that well, done. Well, do you know there's people that actually do that? They have their teeth filed down? Yes. I, yeah. I, I think I saw that on like a Bravo show years ago. Bravo? What's Bravo? Bravo. Bravo. Like that arts channel. Bra- this, is people- my, this is my son, Bravo. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Bravo. Bravo. I'm Bravo. <laughs> Hi. Here's my son, Brabo, and my other son, Brabo. Hi. Brabo and Brabo. Hi. I'm just going to keep saying hi all night. Uh, The 
the last one I want to bring up, I, I found, I really like this one. I've never heard of this before. Have you ever heard of Nain Rouge? Nain Rouge? The Nain Rouge. Red Nose? The Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf. Yeah. That means the Red Dwarf. So it apparently is supposed to be found in Detroit, Michigan. And the dwarf is said to be a relic of the Ottawa native tribe, not to be mistaken with the Ottawa that we live in. But I think there's an Algonquin connection there with with, uh, that area. Probably. So they apparently refer to this creature as the son of their stone god, and um, and they actually viewed him sort of as a protector of their people. Uh, the creature received its French name from the founder of Detroit, or back then it was known as Detroit, Antoine de la Motte Cadillac, after he apparently saw it. Cadillac? Like the car? Cadillac, like the car. Yeah, which I'm assuming is why Cadillac is named Cadillac, because... Uh, they, I'm assuming Cadillac was manufactured in Detroit. Probably. If yeah. any car enthusiasts are out there, you could maybe tell me I'm wrong, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Over the decades, Nain Rouge has been cited prior to many historic events, notably the Battle of Bloody Run. <laughs> what? Wait, what? There's, Bloody Run. There's a battle called the Battle of Bloody Run? Yeah. It was uh, during the uh, 1860s between the English and French. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can't come to work today. I had a bloody run. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds so weird. Okay. Well, they, they massacred the English and their blood ran in a creek. And that's why it's called Bloody Run. Uh, also, apparently, the Red Dwarf was seen uh, before the fire of 1805, which, like a lot of cities at the time, they caught on fire rather easily because they were made out of wood. And, they were all, the, and every, all the houses were connected, so they all went up. Yeah, exactly. They're tightly uh, packed in. It was also cited before General Hall's surrender during the War of 1812. So I don't know if you, so many people don't know this, but Canada and the United States went to war uh, in the War of 1812. It lasted two years. I don't know why they called it the War of 1812 because it lasted two years. But anyway, uh, Detroit was actually sacked by the British slash Canadians and for a short period of time was held by them. So apparently the dwarf made an appearance there. And then again, before the 1967 Detroit riots. And I just want to, what that would look like if you saw a little red dwarf running like through the, that'd be weird. You're the history guy. What is the 1967 Detroit riots? I know nothing of that. What is that? Uh, part of the civil rights movement. Okay, were, uh, I assume there's, there's a, yeah, and it, it just with the um, the injustice that was surrounding them. Right, and there wasn't the Vietnam War around there too. Around that time? Yep. There would have been, well, there would have been smack dab in the middle of the, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of social unrest at that time. Poverty was an issue. Um, race relations were, which have continued to be an issue. Uh, but anyway, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that one, but that, that from what I understand is what that whole riot was about. So all those sightings have been accompanied by an attack from the dwarf himself. And recently groups have formed to spread awareness about uh, the origins of this dwarf. And they consider now the creature to be a guardian of the city rather than a malevolent force. So he's specific to Detroit. He is only seen in Detroit. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So kind of not as spooky. I thought we would end with something a little less dark and scary. Yeah. But that that is my story. And, and there's a story that came in several parts, but I hope you enjoyed it. It's a salad of little little legends and tales. Yeah. A little tossed yeah. salad. 
Riley, anything uh, you would like to mention before we wrap this episode up? No. I'm sorry for getting dark there with the story of my neighbors, but I thought it was a good story. It's a, it's, a, it's true. Oh, no. I, I, and I think just in terms of the, um, the, the mood of the episode that fit well and it, it's okay. I don't think we always need to be silly and funny and um, not, not that we're funny, but we try to be. But it's okay to sort of talk about that kind of thing. And, and uh, that would be something that would stick with you. I, I remember years ago doing a theater production that traveled to different high schools and it was with mothers against drunk driving. And it was, it was actually kind of good. I had a group of high school students, they're going around to other high schools and they actually did a really good job. It wasn't hokey, but one of the things that we also had was a police officer that came with us and he told the same story every time. And I know it really, it was really hard for him to tell that story, but it was about a friends of his that, um, died on Christmas Eve and he had to go to the grandparents' home where the kids were to tell them that their parents were dead uh, and the grandparents. And it, and it was a drunk driver that had killed I was going to say, I think it parents. sounds like a drunk driving story. And it was just, uh, no, the, and he, like he, I, I talked to him about it a few times and that's just something that, um, yeah. that always uh, sits with you, you know? Yeah. And, some things uh, just stay with you forever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was that woman's face when she was just, her family had been whittled away. Anyway, well, I don't want to bum everybody out. I'm, I've got some interesting news for the, for, for the lovers of the weird. Dan and I are going to be working on a two-parter, um, probably for our 25th episode, which is actually not that far away. Um, we're going to just tackle the famous Area 51. And we've talked about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the actual crash and the sort of events that surrounded that in the 50s. And then Dan is going to talk about the aftermath. Yeah, like I'm going to talk about the merchandising, <laughs> uh, the um, the shitty movies that have arisen from it. Um, I'll spend a significant portion of my episode talking about the X Files. What was that terrible teen drama that took place there? Roswell. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Spare me that show. Whew. I never watched it. Oh, it was terrible. Just terrible. But anyway, I would, uh, yeah, I think Area 51 is a good one. It's the biggest and most uh, well-known UFO incident in history. So I think it deserves our attention here at The Weird. Mm -hmm. And uh, good listener, I thought I would also let you know and Riley know that for our 50th episode, uh, we are going to finally tackle the mystery of my office drawer. It's going to be a long episode, uh, probably about four hours in length. Uh, I'm going to spend the first part of the episode just describing the upper layers of the drawer, the rulers, the pens, and I'm going to let Riley dig deeper and talk about the compass and protractor and old hardened erasers that lurk in the deepest recesses of that drawer. Do you know that was my my favorite part of going back to school was getting a new mathematical set? with a nice fresh protractor and a compass. They were so cool. And they were so... Sorry, that was your favorite part? Oh my God. They were, and they were designed to fit so perfectly into that metal box. See, this is a generational thing. We all had to buy a... a and every year I would insist on a new one. And so, um, anyway, I just loved the mathematical set. You didn't like yours? No, I hated math. Do you... What's the... The compass is the thing with the point, yeah, right? you make a circle out of it. People would stab each other with yeah. it. So I, I remember in grade 10 math uh, getting in trouble because I stuck my lips through the protractor 
and I had a pencil in my brow. Like I was, I pinched a, a pencil sort of in my eye, like above my, well, cause you're known for that. Right. And, and yeah, I was, and it was like one of my party tricks that I could do. I could hold a pencil in the brow. I have a thick Irish skull and, uh, and my math teacher was really, I thought at the time he was quite scary uh, stopped the whole class. And I didn't know why he was stopping the class and just said, look at you. And he pointed at me. Then I realized he was, he goes, now we know why you're failing my class so badly. Oh. And, and ever turned around, I had this protractor, like my lips were, were stuck through it and the pencil through. Yeah. Yeah. And I did fail his class. I fail, always failed math. I I hated it. I just sit and doodle and read. Yeah. So why would a, a, a that set make you happy? Because it was cool. It did. I would just use it to draw. It was fun. It was pretty. It was. I don't know. There's something about really well organized, well designed products that excite me. I'm stupid that way. I know. Anyway. No. Um, we get the weird love every one of you who listen to us and follow us. We hope we don't babble too much, but we do love to uh, spin a yarn, and we like to spin yarns within yarns within yarns. <laughs> But we love that you come and spend this time with us. Good night, everybody. Good night, and we'll see you soon. Oh,